Welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. Today we're speaking to Dr Christopher Schultz, who's a lecturer in sustainable development in the School of Geography at the University of St Andrews. Christopher is an interdisciplinary researcher who has interests in environment and development, environmental values and water governance. Christopher has been researching the Urarina community of Peru and their relationship in particular to the peatlands in that part of the world. Today's episode is called Spirit of the Swamp. Hello, Christopher. Welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. Hi, Matt. Uh, thanks to you and Ailey for the invitation. So part of your research involves collecting stories and listening to stories, many of them from the peatlands of Peru. Could we begin by maybe sharing one of those stories with us? Yeah, for sure. So as a bit of background, um, I went to Peru in 2018, spent some time there in an indigenous community of the Uradina nation. And at the time, we knew very little about the peatlands. So we asked the Uradina, well, can you tell us anything about them really at all? And one thing we found is... There are lots of stories about peatlands in the Peruvian Amazon, and some of them relate to spirits. Um, so one of the spirits that the Uradina know is called the Bainu spirit, B-A-A-I-N-U. Uh, and this Bainu spirit lives in peatlands, so in ecosystems with a lot of uh, water in them, very difficult to walk to. And the Bainu, if it encounters a human being, there's always a risk it will abduct you, kidnap you. So if you're hunting in the wetlands, in the peatlands, for taper, for monkeys, or if you go to collect palm fruit there, um, you may find this Bainu spirit uh, takes you away from your village. And what the Bainu then does, it sort of brings you home to his Bainu village or her Bainu village. <laughs> and there it tames the human as if it was some sort of wild animal that needs to be tamed to become a proper Bainu. So if you, yeah, if you spend too much time with the Bainu, there's a risk that as a human, you turn into Bainu yourself and that your family cannot find you anymore. So the villagers, they know about that, of course. So if anyone ever gets lost in the peatland, they try to stop that from happening. So they will, the shamans, they will drink ayahuasca, which is a drink that causes some hallucinations, as we might say in the West. But in that state, the shaman can ask questions and receive answers uh, through a sort of different way. It's their way of receiving information about things like that. So he can ask, well, where's the person, the hunter who was lost? Where can we find him? And so in the best case, he can then tell everyone where to go and look for the hunter who was lost. And they can be rescued before the brain new transforms them into a you. That sounds like a terrifying story and would, I think, put me off from ever uh, wandering in, uh, around in the peatlands in Peru. What does that story and other stories like it, what does that tell us about the relationship between those communities and the peatlands? So I, I think it's remarkably similar, actually, also to Scottish peatlands and peatlands in the north, where we have a sort of ambivalent relationship with the peatlands. In Peru, in the Amazon, people do appreciate the peatlands because they are good hunting grounds for taper, like, that is quite a big animal, would provide a lot of meat to people. Um, but at the same, same time, they are scared of them and there is always this risk of getting lost. Not all of these stories are 
so severe, so this brain you maybe sometimes it will just take you machete, it will not immediately transform you into brain you, it will play around with you. So it does sound like a grim story, but the brain you is actually not the most evil of spirits that this indigenous nation knows. There's others that can be more aggressive and more dangerous than the brain you as well. So Christopher, we feature the story of the brain you in the exhibition for Peatland's sake, and it speaks to that that sort of tradition of storytelling around peatlands, both in in Peru and in Scotland. And it kind of speaks to a tradition of storytelling that seems to transform over time in in the community. I wondered if you could explain how this has happened. The 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 one that I'm thinking of is the idea of these these sort of oil pipeline spirits. So again, a little bit of background here, maybe. So when we went to Peru, we only heard the brain new story at the time. But since then, we've been working with an anthropologist who has spent many years visiting the Uradina. He has a lot more stories, uh, much more in-depth knowledge uh, of their cosmovision, as the anthropologists call it. So he wrote down a story about spirits that live in oil pipelines. So next to the village of that community, there's been an oil pipeline for a few decades now. And the Uradina tell a story of spirits that live in that old pipeline but they can't really communicate very well with with the indigenous people they say those spirits communicate much better with the western people and with the engineers that come come to that place and they also say well those spirits if they interact too much with them maybe it will lead to disease among the indigenous people which from a western point of view makes perfect sense but they're never quite sure how much to say, well, they're really thinking of diseases that come from oil pollution or should we really accept that, you know, there will be that there are actually spirits in those oil pipelines. So I think the broader message is that to the Udarina, spirits are everywhere. So they are in peatlands, they're in, in oil pipelines, they're in all the ecosystems, probably in their villages as well. Those have different characters, just like they know different animal species, maybe. So um, that could be one way of thinking about it. My Peruvian colleague always says, well, we, we come to this with the Western worldview where you say, well, this is an ecosystem, this is a species, but to them, everything is connected. And they don't really have that separation between their environment and their own culture. I think it would be really useful just to take a step back for a moment. Um, just before we, we started recording, you said this research project was the most fun research project you, you've been involved in. What was the research project trying to discover and how did you get involved with it? So this research project started with the natural sciences. So San Andres has quite a few people working on peatlands, but they had been studying the carbon content, the ecology of those ecosystems. They had never, never really stopped to do research with the people who were there. So I was then hired, basically, in the first job after my PhD to travel there and speak to people and understand well what are the values of those ecosystems for local people? What do they have to say about them? Are they man managed well or not? Like we really knew nothing about them whatsoever. So that was one reason why it was quite fun as a research project because it is extremely unusual that you go somewhere and no one has done any previous research. Every information that you bring is new. And then while well, we discovered a lot of these interesting stories uh, that we weren't really expecting, we found how do these indigenous people call the ecosystems? Is there an overlap with the scientific way of classifying ecosystems? And yes, surprisingly there was. So we went with them into the field. We said, well, 
where does this X system end for you? Where's the next one? And then it would point to the level of water in the soil or certain plant species. So yeah, that made it just a really exciting uh, project. And really, it was not very hard to say what is new, what here, which is usually the common problem for researchers to say where is actually a gap. And it's really fantastic, I guess, that the impetus behind that research is to understand how the Urarina community value their lands and how they use them and that sort of thing. And I wonder whether you could explain, I guess, to people who are listening, how you, in your research, work with communities in order to sort of amplify their voices in your research rather than it being a more sort of dictatorial thing? So again, um, Latin America has seen a lot of researchers go and conduct research with indigenous communities. And I mean, the trend is going away from being a Western researcher going there speaking for the indigenous people. The ideal is that they are empowered to do it themselves. And a lot of indigenous people I've, for example, spoken to in Chile, they are quite critical of foreign researchers coming in. They say, well, you're taking our knowledge and then traveling around the world, selling our story when we should be talking about our own story. But I feel in this case, we work with Uralina. It's quite a small nation. It has only 3,000 people, one or two of them have only been to university just now, so they're a teacher in the community. So I feel some collaboration, uh, some speaking for the community is sort of impossible, uh, so is necessarily so in bringing their story to an audience, for example, in the UK. Half of the community doesn't even speak Spanish, the national language of the country. And curiously, that half is the female half, so it's an extremely gender like the gender roles extremely well defined, which has led to the men learning Spanish, interacting with outsiders and the women not learning Spanish, but sort of that way enabling them to become the guardians of their culture. And so the the women are, are interacting less, it sounds like you're saying, with the with the sort of world outside of that Urarina community and becoming the guardians of that culture. Does that mean that the men are interacting more? And and if that is the case, how is that impacting the community itself and their relationship to the land in particular. Yes, that is definitely right. So the men interact with anyone coming from outside. That has a long history, and I think it may even be history from before the arrival of the Spanish. So one hypothesis that we had, which we cannot prove, but which you were discussing, is that the reason why these communities live in peatlands, which are difficult places to live in, is because they've always been less powerful than the other indigenous groups uh, in that region. So they were pushed into difficult environments and the bigger indigenous nations, they sort of lived in easier places. Um, and then when the Spanish came in, it was similar. So the Udarina were either trying to stay away from them or the men might work for the Spanish uh, conquistadores. So there's a, yeah, a history of men working for either the Spanish or selling uh, products to outside traders who like go from village to village. And for that reason, they've had to learn Spanish, but even the men don't usually travel very much. Although our Peruvian collaborators are in Iquitos in the city, they have invited some of the villagers to the capital city, to Lima, um, to showcase their uh, textile art. 
international fair for indigenous people. So yeah, there has been some changes there that the local people have had the opportunity to travel a bit more, get to know the country a bit better and in a more positive. Yeah. I think what's really interesting there, Christopher, speaking about the way that communities are using almost using the forest resources to to make textiles or that sort of thing. There's this cultural tradition tied up in the use of peatlands. Now, one of the things that we found about Scottish peatlands is that peat itself is used more often as a fuel rather than the lands more broadly. And I guess culturally that's what it seems to be in Peru, doesn't it? That 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 people are using the forest resources to create textiles, food and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So the peat itself uh, isn't used as a fuel in in the Amazon. And that is maybe also one of the reasons why it took until quite recently to discover that there are peatlands in the first place, right? It's only been known uh, for about 15 years now. It's still quite a recent. People say we shouldn't call it discovery because local people have, of course, always known. But at least for Western scientists, uh, it was uh, uh, news that peatlands could exist in such ecosystems. So indeed, people use more forest resources from palm trees. They collect fruit uh, from the palm tree, which grows in some of the peatland areas. And yeah, the textile, they're um, based on the fiber, which again, harvested in the peatland areas. Um, so the women do go into those places to harvest from the very young aguache, um, the fiber to, to be able to make textiles, traditional textiles. Yeah, the palm fruit from the aguache it also attracts a lot of animals, so that is also why the area is good for hunting, because those uh, animals. So it seems that there's a there's a very close and tight relationship between the between the lands then and the animals that live on that land and the the communities and particularly the the Urarina community that that live in that area. You mentioned earlier that research in this area began. Uh, in the kind of natural sciences sphere and, and thinking about the carbon content of the of the peat and obviously peat is incredibly important for our planet as a whole as, as a carbon as, as carbon sequestration how then does the the protection or the maybe protection is not the right word um, of those communities how does that line up with the protection of the peatlands themselves and the the wider protection of our planet as a result so i've seen one interesting report FIO, FAO, I think, where they said in Latin America, the areas with the least amount of deforestation were those that were under indigenous management. So even in the protected areas that have a lot of uh, bans on resource use, even their deforestation was higher than in indigenous territories, regardless of whether they had any conservation agreement or not. So it's then I think reasonable to think giving more rights to those indigenous uh, communities, making sure that their land titles are safe, well recognized by the Peruvian state, will also benefit the peatland areas in the sense they wouldn't be, yeah, they wouldn't cut down um, the trees or wouldn't drain them. Um, so, in one reason why the natural scientists approached us as social scientists is because they had looked to Southeast Asia. Malaysia, Indonesia, where lots of peatland areas have been drained or burned down to make monocultures of uh, palm oil plantations. 
So in Peru, that hasn't happened at all. Um, but the idea is also to uh, work towards avoiding that ever or stop that from ever happening. So that's really interesting because I guess you might think that those those communities are, are using the resources, they're using the aguaje, they're hunting the animals, and that that might be damaging to the land. But I, but actually, that it sounds like that's not the case at all. That it's the it's the polar opposite. Yeah. So I mean, there is levels to it. To harvest aguaje fruit, a lot of people do cut the tree because the fruit are very high and it's really hard to reach them if you don't have specialist equipment. Um, but we found that in the indigenous community. The intensity was not so high, so the trees could grow again. And another thing that indigenous people there did, they changed the location of their community every few decades. So if sort of one place was depleted in terms of Ayahuasca, they would move somewhere else and then there would be some regeneration. We also visited communities that were of mixed cultural heritage and then the situation was extremely different. They would just harvest all the aguaje they could find. Everyone was saying, well, when I was a child, this was really rich. Now we don't know what to do. Uh, we have to walk so far to harvest any fruit. Again, it was quite interesting to see how two communities that are not very far from each other managed their ecosystems so differently and managed their palm fruit so differently. I guess it speaks to it being sort of a matter of scale in many ways, in that like you say, when there is an indigenous community who has lived in absolute harmony with the land for generations and generations, using using the lands almost in a sort of subsistence way, that, that seems different to a community who is wishing to take advantage of the fact that they have a commodity that people might desire. Um, and you can hardly blame people for, for wanting to do that. It strikes me that there's something in scale there. Yeah, I mean, the mixed heritage community, Mestizo community, they were also larger. They were about a thousand people, whereas the indigenous was just a hundred. But the other differences that I found interesting is sort of the aspiration to consume more, buy more things, have more services was really strong in the Mestizo community. So there was a little hotel, for example, where there was a hundred meter of paved, how do you say pavement, concrete pavement that some government had put there like, a few decades ago and then that someone had bought a motorcycle to go on those hundred meters back and forth which really doesn't make any sense like you can walk anywhere in five to ten minutes maximum it's still a small community but they wanted to consume and buy things and participate in sort of a more western uh, lifestyle and certainly if you ask people what do they want for their children they want them to go to the city and study and have uh, well-paying jobs, um, which I mean isn't bad in that sense, but it's a very different vision for the future than the indigenous people had. What does that tell us about how those communities might develop in the future? Is is there a risk that those communities might disappear entirely? Well, it depends again so much on the culture and um, also what outside actors choose to do. The moment we didn't really see a risk of those communities disappearing, um, the situation was relatively stable. I mean, there's some issues with petroleum exploitation. Um, but on the other hand, even the indigenous people, they um, get hired to help maintain the pipeline. So sort of it has been a 
reasonably peaceful coexistence in that particular place. I can't speak for other parts of the Amazon. But again, when we look to the scenario of Southeast Asia, if anyone decided, well, we want palm oil production in Peru, if a very different government came in to subsidize that, or if more roads were built, I mean, at the moment, there are no roads anywhere. You have to go everywhere by boat. So that is sort of a natural barrier to that sort of overuse that we've seen in other parts. So I'm not concerned in the short term, but we don't really know what will happen in the longer term future. And I guess some of the work that has gone on at the university that has helped, like you say, to sort of to enable community members to to get sort of protection for their cultural heritage or whatever it might be. So knowing that the textiles, like you said, women have gone to craft fairs in Lima to to show their their wares and to to sort of there's that sort of advocacy for it. Do you think that's that's an important way of sort of empowering communities to hold on to their traditions and and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it's a very positive initiative. Also, I think their textile art was recognised as a cultural heritage of the country of Peru, which is quite of high symbolic value. I think it's not realistic to think there will be no contact between those communities and others for the future. Rather, one should think, well, how to manage that exchange and contact in the best possible way. So a winning recognition for their culture. If they are well known in the country, there's less likely that someone will say, well, we'll just build more oil pipelines here or we'll move these people. I mean, there's a higher likelihood they will get land rights if they are well known as an indigenous community, I feel. So So in that sense, I think it's really good that they have allies in the Proven Amazon Research Institute who, yes, they do research there, but also uh, they do advocacy uh, on a national level, which a very small indigenous group can not do very easily for themselves. I guess that's it, isn't it? Is that actually being able to have that platform with national governments and that sort of thing, that's the the level at which big strategic decisions are made. And if that advocacy is there, then hopefully governments will value peatlands as extremely valuable cultural and ecological resources, I guess. I, I guess that's the hope. Yeah, I mean, there is an opportunity for the Peruvian government to tell a very positive story of how they have recognised there's these ecosystems that are extremely important for the global climate, but also for the local culture, local cultural heritage. It is a story that I would want to be telling as a government minister rather than having to defend why why have we allowed draining or fires or all of the threats that are there to peatlands and other places. So obviously your your research and the work of the various research groups can have a big strategic influence on governments and as a result on on both these communities and on on the protection of the peatlands themselves. If we we bring it down to a sort of more individual level, the average person in the streets, how can they have a positive influence? Perhaps if they were to come and visit the For Peatlands Sake exhibition at the Wardlaw Museum, what message would you want them to go away with? And then what would you want them to to do as a result? So, I mean, yes, you're right. It's those peatlands are quite distant from any resident here in the UK. There's not an immediate impact at the moment. So I think what I would take to do uh, anyway is to avoid uh, consuming palm oil. I mean, that is not for the Peruvian peatlands, but certainly for the 
Southeast Asian ones, or at least look out for sustainability certificates. And there's supposedly some palm oil that is sustainably sourced. Because it's easy to see if palm oil becomes more, more widespread, maybe eventually the trade would spread to South America. Generally, of course, there's a lot of deforestation in Latin America that is caused by uh, raising cattle or by soybean production that feeds European beef, so the European cows. So reduction in meat consumption can have an immediate positive benefit for uh, Latin American ecosystems, even though I don't think that is specific to peatlands, but it's certainly relevant for the Amazon rainforest. And then also I would invite local people to think more about their local peatlands. Right? Um, when we talked about these uh, buying new spirits um, to our British collaborators, they said, oh, well, actually, and there are stories like this also about the Scottish peatlands. And then I said, well, maybe I should tell my child about it. So they also have that close relationship. And I mean, why not? Why not revive those traditions a bit more? Because I'm sure they are there. Maybe they are not. Not everyone is as familiar with them, but um, that could be a task uh, for anyone to bring them back to life. So, Christopher, I wonder, as a sort of final question, what do you hope that visitors to the exhibition at the Wardlow Museum will understand about the experience of communities in Peru and their relationship? To their land. I think we can learn a lot from them about how close they are to those ecosystems, how well they know them, how the culture is very closely linked with the ecology, with social aspects, with everything is really very closely linked um, because of different lifestyle, different scale of everything. But I think yeah, um, that doesn't stop us from also developing closer links with our environment, with our ecosystems, learning about the species that are around us, learning about the cultural traditions that we have here. I think it is, it's a really good lesson to know and coexist better with the environment in which you find yourself. Two-way relationship rather than a take what we can from the world around us. Christopher, if people want to find out more about the Urarina community, where can they go? How can they do that? Obviously, they should come to the exhibition, but there's also a few books that have been written. And uh, in particular, my colleague, Emanuele Fabiano, he has collected Urarina stories and has had them translated into English. I'm not sure if that can be downloaded from the internet, but for sure, if anyone would like to know more, would like to see those stories, we would be happy to share them, share a PDF of that book. The best starting point is really um, the book with stories. But the truth is, there is not very much out there yet. Uh, it's a small community. It's not been visited by very many people. Actually, in your research papers, you you can see drawings that community members have done of the spirits as well, which is really interesting to see how they sort of visualise those spirits. Yeah, I mean, that was interesting also for us and for me as well to see that the spirits actually look quite a lot like humans, because you hear a story told about it, you don't really know what are they imagining, but actually... When they draw the spirits, you realize, well, actually, they are really close to them. And so the story of a human becoming a Bainu makes a lot of sense. You think, well, this person is now Bainu, but you can still recognize it as your former neighbor or your former uncle or something. Krisha, it's been a, a fascinating discussion. I feel like we've been to the other side of the world, but at the same time, drawn lessons for our own communities here in, in Scotland. So thank you very much for speaking to us today. Well, thank you to you both for, for the invitation. It was really great fun to 
travel back in time and to share a few stories from that time. Matt, I think that was such a good note to end on, wasn't it? That what we can learn really from the communities in Peru, even if they do seem distant to us in, in Scotland, is that we just need to have a better understanding of the world around us and how we impact on it. Isn't that always the case, early? And I, and the, the myths that we have in Scotland suggest that we used to have that. And I wonder, wonder what has happened. A conversation for another day. And if you want to hear some of the Uravina myths and see some of the drawings from the communities that Christopher spoke about, we obviously have them on display in For Peatland's Sake, which is on at the Wardlaw Museum until the 7th of May 2023. So come on down and have a look. And we also have the Uravina Myths book for sale in our shop. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And join us next month when we're going to be speaking to another of Christopher's colleagues in School of Geography. The Curiosity Conversation is brought to you by the Museums of the University of St Andrews.